0: My name is Kelly Blejos, and I am joined by my friends and co-conspirators, Daniel Larison and Barbara Bolin, uh, for our latest episode of Crashing the War Party. The three of us have been collectively writing for decades about the military-industrial complex and the swampy ecosystem that is the Beltway Blob, and we hope to puncture a hole in it with our new show every week. So we have a a really ambitious endeavor here, and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I'd like to talk this week about Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden recently announced that he is bringing U.S. troops home. Uh, September 11th is the date he promises that we will be leaving either ahead or by that date. Uh, This is a sort of break with or is a break with the May 1 deadline that had been established under the Doha agreement, which Trump, President Trump, had signed with the Taliban last year. That agreement put forth uh, May, May 1 as a deadline for all U.S. and foreign troops to be out of Afghanistan. So it's a pretty big deal that we are breaking with that deadline. There ha- there was no agreement with the Taliban today to extend uh, the deadline to September 1. So it is a unilateral violation of that deadline. Uh, but President Biden was pretty forceful that this is the time uh, to get out. He's going to take the next six six months to pull up stakes. Uh, he is adamant that we are not going to stay, that it won't be conditions-based. So he's not going to two months from now say, well, the violence has kicked up, so we have to stay Uh, This is quite, created quite a stir in in Washington. There, I'm sensing it's about 50-50. You have plenty of people who have been uh, advocating to get out of this war for some time now. It's been 20 years uh, since uh, US forces have entered Afghanistan and many people are saying it's time to go, including members of the military. But then you have the other half, the, the beltway blob that I spoke of, who are much more uh, skeptical that US forces uh, can leave behind uh, a a, a country that can take care of itself. And in many ways they're right, Uh, but they are really pushing the buttons about human rights and women's rights and and saying that we will, if we leave, we are opening up a, a power vacuum into which uh, not only the Taliban will pour, but other terrorists in the region. So I kind of wanted to talk about that today. I wanted to talk about the sort of the, the narratives that have been building up after Biden's announcement of, of withdrawal and, and and whether or not there are concerns that that President Biden might cave to some of these uh, blobby uh, pressures so uh, why don't you start, Dan? What what do you think about a the res- withdrawal announcement, but b some of the narratives that are building up uh, in its wake?
1: Uh, sure, thanks, Kelly. <clears throat> so I, I'm I was pleased by the announcement in that Biden seems to understand that he has to draw a line under this war. He has to to set a, a definite date for when we're getting out. And I mean, of course, the September 11th date is a little uh, cheesy, I guess, as a symbol, uh, but it is it is at least a specific date that he's going to try to stick to, or at least he says he is. And uh, so that's good because, uh, as, as you were saying, uh, it's, it's not going to be conditions-based withdrawal because conditions-based withdrawals can always uh, be extended forever because the conditions will always remain uh, poor enough that you can keep justifying military presence. And so setting a definite limit uh, is important. <laughs> Uh, as a way of making sure that pe- we don't just keep kicking the can down the road. Uh, that said, I don't know why they couldn't have just done this and kept to the May 1st deadline. Uh, they wasted several months uh, when they first came into office, sort of sitting on their hands and talking to allies and not showing any urgency about this at all. And so uh, that that was, I think, a wasted opportunity that was wasted time that they they could have used better uh, but now they are at least moving in the right direction. Uh, the, the one caveat for that is there does seem to be a, a, an asterisk on this withdrawal that says, we're going to continue using special forces and drones and airstrikes to attack Al Qaeda and ISIS and Afghanistan anyway. So the troops will be removed, but at some level, the war will continue. And so it'll be sort of like our missions in Somalia or Yemen or other places that are part of the the broader war on terror, uh, where we continue to blow things up. uh, But because we don't have people on the ground, or we don't have combat troops as such, uh, regular combat troops, we're supposedly not involved anymore. And so I I think that's a a way to sort of uh, extend a forever war while still getting credit uh, for pulling troops out. And so I'm worried that that's how they're going to try to sort of how it things both ways.
0: You know, that, um, that sounds a little pessimistic, Dan, but I think realistic given the last 20 years and how all the, the twists and turns of this of this journey. And so many times we were told we were getting out only to see a surge of 5,000 troops here, 10,000 troops there. Um, and it was always because of conditions changing on, on the ground. And you make a really good point about the fact that he did say that we needed to concentrate um, on, on other things, other threats, but also that we would not give up on the counterterrorism mission. And so that leaves that leaves kind of a, a yawning gap in terms of like uh, what could what could be, in, in in six months from now, Barbara, what do you think about that?
2: Well, I think that no president wants to be responsible for another ISIS situation like taking the troops out of Afghanistan and having a a horrible public relations nightmare of that type of proportions crop up. Biden definitely doesn't want to see something like that happen. On the other hand I think that his political instincts are are stronger and I was actually surprised a little bit. I was uh I was dismayed when he first got, became president. It felt like he was being very managed, very handled, and that his his handlers had this very tight control of everything, that they were doing all the things that the D.C. blob does all of the time in and talking the way they talk all the time, everything. Like, it's going to take a long time. We're going to review. It's a, it's under policy review. Everything's good. But then... Um, But when this kind of came up and then this said, oh, we're still taking time, it was like, well, why why is this taking so long? We know that Biden never even when he was vice president under Obama, he was he had a lot of reservations about the Afghanistan mission and extending it in the way that it was extended after the original um, mission was completed. So Biden had sort of the right idea from the beginning in Afghanistan. And um, I was upset when I started noticing, like, what's going on? Why is this, like, what's happening here kind of thing. But then all of a sudden it kind of seemed like, He got control of his people maybe, or he just told them, no, we're getting out of there this year. So even though it's not May 1st, it's this year, and it is a different date, but it's still this year. And he said that pretty forcefully. He also said something that I thought was interesting, that he's the only president that had um, a son or a child that served in these wars. And I think that that's actually, you know, it does make a big difference to have that personal element, to have actually experienced that sacrifice, and to you know that these wars have sort of gone on and on for, it seems like, not very much of a purpose. And Biden does have that personal understanding of that. So, on the one hand, he does not want. Afghanistan or Iraq to spout some kind of new type of ISIS scenario but and none of us I don't think really do want to see that happen Um, but we all you can't have um, but there's so many ways to get out of there we don't have to continue to have a massive military presence in the Middle East you know (laughs) it's Lindsey Graham that wants to make you think that if we we either have to have thousands and thousands of American troops stationed over there or we're going to have ISIS or we're going to have another 9-11. So there's there's other options between these things. So, and I think that Biden actually does understand that and the political calculations of understanding that are actually pretty pretty significant. And what's interesting is too, that this gives him maneuverability in the US on the political left, because this gives him a win with the left and there's other areas that he can kind of use that where he's not maybe gaining as much ground with them. He can, this is very popular.
0: Well, one thing to think of, you know, or be mindful of is that there is a split on Capitol Hill between those who wanna stay and ones who want to withdraw. And it doesn't run necessarily along party lines. So you see over the weekend, uh, there were voices like Ben Menendez, Democrat, Senator, uh, head of the Foreign Relations Committee, saying that he didn't like the idea of such a hasty withdrawal. That's the same thing that Mitch McConnell is saying and Lindsey Graham. But then on the other side, you see Ted Cruz, very conservative Republican from Texas, saying time to get out and Josh Hawley, time to get out, Rand Paul, time to get out. So I do think that there, this is an interesting issue that's splitting Democrats, uh, I don't wanna say 50-50, but when you have key Dem- Democrats like Menendez um, casting some shade or some aspersions on this decision, um, that's a big deal. And we know where the hawk, you know, hawkish Republicans always stand um, but that there are other Republicans who um, want to remember that this was Trump's legacy. You know, Trump is the one who signed the deal to get us out on May first. Trump had spoken quite forcefully that he wanted all the troops out by the end of the year, and the military were the military had pushed back on that. And so I believe that the republic, their Republican base, trump, you know, the Trump, Uh, supporting base that, that want to leave, and they have been very vocal about it. So I'm not sure if there will be any effort by members of Congress to try to change Biden's mind, but you can be sure if the Taliban starts shooting at our soldiers come May 1st when they don't see us pulling up stakes that there's probably going to be an effort by the Mende- Menendez's of the world and the Jean Shaheen of uh, you know New Hampshire's of the world um, to say, "Listen, we can't leave now because you know um, you know look look at all the the violence that's happening in Afghanistan cities because we're leaving." So I don't think the fight is over. I do think that um, I, I agree with you, Barbara. I thought the speech was very effective and that he was putting a personal sort of, he was infusing a lot of emotion and personal experience into the speech and on using, not using, but you know, touching upon his, his son and his son's service to the country. I think Biden senses that there are a lot of veterans out there who are, are, are finished with this war and they vocalized it and they're vocalizing it in op-eds, they're vocalizing it in ads. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of campaigns. The Quincy Institute's had a campaign. The Concerned Veterans of America have had a huge like million dollar campaign where they utilize a lot of veterans and veterans groups to say, listen, we you know we poured our heart into this war. Our families have to. We are, we have the scars to prove it. We're not winning. Let's get out. And I think he I think that was a little nod to them, to, you know, to say, listen, I, I know that the the, the 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 entire military is not against uh, my decision. In fact, you know, when the American Legion that just came out to say that they are for ending forever war, that's a big deal. I mean, the American Legion is a conservative veterans organization of 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 huge you know um, respect and recognition with the american veterans community and for them to say let's get out of this forever war i, I think i think biden read the right writing on the wall well Absolutely. i like i
2: think da, da, yeah daniel larsen i think wrote a piece about this but trump trump took up what is a traditionally democrat position against these it was traditionally Democrats that were against us being in these types of wars. And that was traditionally their position that we shouldn't be in, or should not be engaged in these type of, of wars. And that, I mean, traditionally, more or less, I guess you could say, maybe with the exception of sort of JFK, this was kind of their position. So for Trump to, Trump did take that banner and, and run on it. And he did do so quite successfully. Now, of course, it may be very, uh, in vogue to be anti anything that Trump is, but I think that Biden is smart to stick with what his traditional, he, on this, and this, this is not even just about politics. Honestly, this is something that, People have have real, I mean, people have lost lives, friends, family members. It's an ongoing, you know, it battle scars, the PTSD that family members have felt from, from a 19-year war with billions of dollars lost in Afghanistan. And what do we have to show for it at this point? I mean, this is a this is a serious question, actually. that Afghanistan is not. Is not is is truly a a bottomless pit, and unfortunately, when we get out of there, it is going to probably descend into a civil war, and there's almost nothing we can do to stop that. That's what all the experts say, regardless of if we stay or leave.
1: Absolutely, and well, and the thing to bear in mind is that Afghanistan's been almost continuously at war for 40 years. I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm 42 this year. Uh, Afghanistan's basically been at war my entire lifetime and it's it's a, it's not a, a natural state of being for the country it's something that has been foisted upon them by outside powers it's it's outside intervention by different states that has continued to fuel these wars I mean, of course Pakistan has its share of blame for that uh, of course uh, the soviets uh, as well and then the russians uh, and and then of course uh, us and our regional clients and so, if we are interested in Afghanistan being at peace, if we're interested in stopping the conflict that has consumed hundreds of thousands of Afghan lives and displaced millions more, uh, then our uh, then extricating ourselves from it is the first step towards that. That's not an impediment to peace. It's actually uh, something that will make peace more likely in the long term. Uh, in fact, I think this is something that Adam Weinstein uh, has talked about, uh, and he, he wrote about uh, ahead of Biden's announcement, saying that you're not going to have a durable political settlement until we get out. And so the longer we stay, the longer we prolong the agony of the country. And it's, it's not often seen that way. It's seen entirely in terms of a, a sort of replay of 1975 and the fall of Saigon. And, and it's possible that the Taliban will take Kabul uh, after US forces leave. But it's also possible that the Afghan government can hang on long enough that they can actually negotiate some sort of power sharing. And, and that's really where things will have to go if there's going to be an end to the conflict. And so uh, if, if we're serious about a, a better future for that country, uh, we have to accept that our military presence isn't going to be a part of that future and that that's okay. And, and we shouldn't be so hung up on these, these phony concerns about credibility I think Elliot Cohen was rambling on about how uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan somehow endangers Ukraine from uh, from Russian invasion. These these are insane theories that people keep spinning that they use to try to keep us bogged down in conflicts we don't need to fight.
0: Yeah, I totally agree and I I feel like you're going to you're going to hear more of that and these are likely suspects, you know, Elliot Cohen, Max Boot, had a piece up uh, recently in The <laughs> yes. Washington Post about how dangerous uh, this withdrawal plan is. Uh, I think what is more um, more dangerous in terms of like narrative building is when you have Hillary Clinton going out there and talking about women's rights and the humanitarian issue. and I just flipped on you know Fox News uh, recently and you know they have their all-star panels where they try to mix it up between you know democratic centrists and 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 Republicans and 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 both to you know both sides were talking about all of the pitfalls of this withdrawal. They were talking about the security situation. They were talking about the Taliban taking over. They're talking about little girls not being able to go to school. And so I feel like and the mainstream media is totally bought in on that narrative. And so even uh, NPR over the over the weekend after. Biden had made that uh, had made his announcement, you know, with the, all of the stories about what will be left in Afghanistan and to, after we leave. And um, Politico had a piece about, you know, how Biden overruled his his generals and his military, you know, with yes, this, yeah. This, yeah, this idea that somehow the generals were had warned against this precipitous Withdrawal and what would be left <laughs> behind, and that you know Biden had you know taken these steps to overrule him, which is absolutely outrageous. When we we live in a country in which we have you know the civilian leadership of the military and military policy, and for Politico to put a headline up there at you know uh, suggesting that it was Biden that was overruling uh, the general tells time. you what the zeitgeist is in this country about civil military you know relationships
2: the way that they tried to influence the narrative through the headlines was very interesting I wish I could pull up I don't have it in front of me right now Somebody did kind of pull up, uh, or so I think someone was putting together like these headlines because it's very interesting the way that they can do that by making it, you know, overruling the generals. Or, you know, is this supposed to be a good thing or a bad thing? I, is someone, is that, are they exercising leadership here or are they? you know, being arrogant and see the thing is, too, I was I was actually going to say this. Biden himself, right, had had 40 years experience Mm -hmm. uh, on Senate Foreign Relations Committee and around these issues. And then as Obama's vice president and working as he did closely with susan rice and listening in on these conversations and even though he was overruled by obama repeatedly he was in the room within these hearing what else was happening you know and you know obama maybe didn't listen to him he heard what you know wasn't listened to right, right. so <laughs> you know he actually maybe heard what could have been a, what should have maybe been overruled when those generals were saying because they do they come in it sounds like these guys have everything right they have all the experience in the world right. but what's interesting when you talk about the issue of Afghanistan and you talk about the women's rights issues or the education issues there is that like that story that I wrote for the American Conservative either it was last year at least two years ago now about the issue of Pakistan and how we never dealt with that. And it also reminds me of an even older story that was in the New York Times, which is a real scandal. I think it was about six years ago, um, which dealt with a a massive scandal in the American military of us, uh, the US Army, and it's um, basically cooperation with the Afghan police, um, which were raping like boys in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And the problem was, right. The issue being that, you know, the, so, there are systemic, very deep systemic problems in Afghanistan. Um, so deep and bad that, that it actually made, that makes the Taliban seem an improvement on sometimes on the Afghan government that we are, by the way, right now propping up and working with and cooperating with so when we right now are talking about helping the afghan government you have to remember that's who we're helping we're helping the ones that were are we're doing the raping back then so yeah it's so right complicated now, it's so bad and so it's 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 almost like it's very difficult but and it's and you know at any time that i've ever spoken to you know um veterans from from there and they're talking about like waste or a fraud and abuse or even just they're sort of with how nothing got done or even what right. they were involved in it's just like they fit it often feels like there isn't any good that can come from this yeah. because it's it's an intractable problem and in many ways these these are things where we don't have the experience the right experience culturally
0: or historically. And it's not our country. That's the thing, it's not our country. And so to add right. a, to, at a certain point, there's there's nothing we can do except for keep pouring money at the situation. And then and, it just well, gets funneled into did, corrupt sources. You get to people comments. on
2: CNN or like, you wanna have these panels, right? where they are trying to say, this is the good guy or let's help these people. And in the U.S. can only do that. We, cannot, we can't, we, we don't have the ability to take everybody out and start fresh. And we, we shouldn't do that anyway, but we wouldn't be able to. So you can't, we have no, and look at how far away we are, but this is such a bad situation. Like these characters, there are no good teams. There's literally the Taliban, and the other guys are people that raped boys.
0: So Listen, like this, yeah. this is not a good team. Well, we only have a few minutes left. I want to just put a, a quick lightning rod round out. I'm going to ask you the quick question. Do you think we will be out of Afghanistan on September 11th? Dan?
1: Uh, I, yeah, I think the, the regular combat troops, the 2,500 or however many there are, will will be pulled out by then. Uh, special forces and, and drone operators will probably still be hanging around barb
0: yes i think so i'm gonna go in and say i'm a little doubtful that we will be out but i do think that we will be like you said dan in some capacity whether it be special forces or maybe thousands of, of military contractors who are invisibly operating uh under under the radar um but thank you guys and uh We'll be uh, right back with our next segment. Well, we would like to introduce one of our first guests to crashing the war party, Brad Palumbo. Brad is a libertarian conservative journalist and policy correspondent at the Foundation for Economic Education and host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast. He has previously been a media and journalism fellow at the Washington Examiner and an editor at the libertarian media nonprofit Young Voices. His work has appeared in outlets such as USA Today, National Review, The Daily Beast, The Boston Globe, and he's also appeared on Fox News and Fox Business. Um, I'm very excited to have Brad on the show. I feel like I know you, Brad, even though I don't know if we've ever met personally, but I see you on Twitter all the time, and I know we've engaged each other's stuff. And I'm just so, I'm so excited to, to pick your brain a little bit about the, the political landscape and foreign policy and national security. So welcome to Crashing the War Party.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be uh, with you guys and keep up with all the work you guys do on the foreign policy front.
0: Yeah, thanks, and, and and thank you, especially for being one of our first guests. We're really excited, and um, you know, this is a big boon for us. Uh, I'd like to start out. I you know I had planned on asking you a more political question, but I know uh, there's been uh, a bit of resumption in the protests out in uh, the heartland today. Uh, police uh, protests in Minnesota, and there's more talk about the militarization of police. Again, once again, we've seen this all year, 2020. Um, but we also had a news story up at Responsible Statecraft, and uh, it's been, you know, going around making making the rounds about the Biden administration not putting a clamp on uh, the the military surplus that is going to local police departments, the so-called 1033 Act. Uh, which was which allows them to to give this military surplus, and we see heavy, oh, maybe not heavy weaponry, but we see you know heavy vehicles, armored vehicles, and other weapons going going to police departments that most of us think they don't really need. And this contributes to this sort of the idea of this military militarization of our cops on the streets, uh, wearing armor and um, basically treating. Uh, American neighborhoods is battle space. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this ongoing issue and and whether or not you've seen it it actually, um, how much of a toll you've actually seen it uh, taking on American communities.
3: Yeah, I think it's one of the many different policy areas and sub-elements of criminal justice and police reform that are important and that matter because Fundamentally, I mean, I think we would all acknowledge uh, policing is a very difficult job. that takes a brave and unique set of skills. But when we set officers up for failure, they often fail. And one of the problems that we have with police brutality is basically overkill. It's... uh, Situations like what just happened this week uh, where a police officer meant to use her taser and instead she drew her firearm and and shot uh, an unarmed man twice who who then died at the scene. So I guess it it really is what kind of incentive structure do we set up officers with? And so there are lots of things to talk about there, like the liability shield they enjoy from uh, civil lawsuits from people who feel their constitutional liberties have been violated. But one of them is the 1033 program which has actually been an area of bipartisan reform. You have people like uh, Rand Paul and then progressives, like I think it's Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz. Um, But there's lots of Democrats who want to roll this back because when we're giving police officers armored vehicles that look like something you'd see in an image from Iraq or Afghanistan uh, or or flamethrowers or body armor or really bayonets, all sorts of crazy stuff, I mean, most police officers... Aren't seeking to go out and hurt people for fun, but when you're giving them excessive tools, they'll end up doing excessive damage. So I think that's one of the areas that really should be a common sense and bipartisan reform um, because it's just it's just wasteful and, uh, and unnecessary, and it doesn't actually improve public safety. There's lots of studies that look into have looked into that.
0: I think that one of the the glitches in the matrix, so to speak, that we saw was last spring when Secretary of Defense Mark Esper actually called American communities the battle space and said that we have to sort of, I, I forgot what the word is, somebody jump in here. He, he made some comment about um, dominating the, the battle Dom- space. Right, yes. Yeah, and in relation to what was going on in Minneapolis at the time, or was it Washington? I, I, I can't remember. At the time, and people were outraged. But I feel like civil libertarians, uh, like myself and Brad, I mean, we've been we've been watching this civil military gap grow and grow and grow to the point where uh, these cops are calling citizens that they're supposed to be protecting and enforcing the law for civilians as though they are soldiers and we are in Iraq or Afghanistan and the rest of us are a bunch of civilians. And I feel like he he, he showed his hand at that moment, but this is how I believe, you know, the cops and, and the military, you know, have become so intertwined in how they view the, the people. And, and in this regard, maybe re, I feel that they re, they view the people as the other And yes, they have to dominate that battle space and that battle space happens to be Main Street USA, apparently.
3: Yeah, it is unfortunately kind of emblematic of a pretty toxic mindset that is in uh, some of the police force. And oftentimes people wanna just jump to easy explanations like, oh, they're all just racists. And they kind of ignore the fact that police forces are actually pretty disproportionately composed of minority uh, officers in America. The truth is what they are is just across the board, overly aggressive and violent, uh, not just against African-American people, though there are some disparities obviously that are numerically borne out, um, but there's just a culture of um, over utilization of the means and tools that we give police officers. And then, then, then there's also a culture, thanks to the really pernicious influence of police unions, public sector unions, And then the civil liability shield that I mentioned, there's not accountability in most cases for police officers who make mistakes uh, and who violate citizens' rights. And that's one of the big problems because look, my background's in economics, that's what I focus on, but it's not just about the economy or business. Incentives are key to understanding human behavior. And the incentives that we give police officers right now are all wrong. And then we wonder why we get dysfunctional results.
2: I think that's a very good point. I mean, if you compare how we treat police officers versus the liabilities, for instance, for medical doctors, um, there couldn't be a starker contrast. I mean, the, the malpractice, if a doctor messes up versus if a police officer messes up, I mean, um, the town uh, or the the. The town is who shields the, the cop, not the cop is not liable when they mess up, even if they are fired, it's still the town that's on that foots the bill. So it's even buyers. for sh- yeah. right, so who's paying? What was that payout for Derek Chauvin uh, in Minneapolis? The twenty-seven million dollars or whatever—that's Minneapolis who gets to pay that. By the way, who also has to pay for all the looting and all the fires and everything else that happened? So guess what, guys? The taxpayers are actually the ones who pay for everything. Ta-da, which I guess you can talk more about. That's sort of your whole job.
3: (laughs) But you did bring up a a good point that that I jump on, which is one idea that's been proposed is essentially making officers carry some sort of liability insurance, similar to doctors. Uh, And you could even have it be department-wide. But right now, there's no skin in the game. So in the sense that if a police department has to pay out a, a big settlement, it's not the police department's budget where that money comes from. It's the city, which means taxpayers, right? But if police departments, if you could have a structure where when they mess up and they have to give a multi-million payment out, that's coming out of their budget, their department, you know, uh, they're feeling it, that would correct the system in a a significant way. Because right now it's like, well, when they mess up, the costs are imposed elsewhere beyond. Obviously, sometimes there are personal costs for that officer, but department-wide, there's not that financial accountability which is what makes things work efficiently.
2: I mean it's an interesting idea but I hate sort of uh, ideas that ultimately just reward trial lawyers but that's a whole other topic for another time Um, because it's just another thing that rewards over all this this culture of suing and um, sort of that you know kind of just that sort of um, mentality, but that's a completely different topic. There's so many different angles and and sort of layers to this, but I thought uh, one thing that was really uh, disheartening, I don't know if you saw the video from the Virginia uh, arrest of the um, black military officer where they were giving him contradictory instructions, and then, they sort of said, like they were telling him to stay in the car, but also put his hands out of the car. And he said he was afraid. And they said he should be. I mean, just that telling him that he should be afraid. um, I thought it was a very accurate, but also stunning admission from the police, um, showing actually exactly what the police should not be in terms of their interaction with the public. Now, these particular police officers had actually been fired before this whole video had come out and before this uh, lawsuit, which is a good thing and um, not something we always see, unfortunately. But I just thought that that particular, uh, what they said, like, you should be afraid. I mean, what... That that actually their interaction throughout the whole um, thing was exactly what's wrong with how the officers are interacting with the public.
3: Yeah, um, I, I I agree. And also one other thing notable about that stop that went wrong and went viral is that it was he was an African American veteran who had a firearm with him legally. Right. And I'm just saying there should be just as much outrage about that from the Second Amendment crowd as there would be if that was a white person who was stopped and a lot of people do, a lot of people are consistent on it. I'm not saying that whole crowd is racist by any stretch, but some notable voices are not nearly as concerned about this as I think they should be. Because if you believe in the second amendment and the right to legally lawfully bear arms, that means everybody should be able to enjoy it and that it doesn't justify uh, police harassment when you're just lawfully exercising your rights.
2: Right. Right.
1: Absolutely, uh, and th- thanks for coming on, Brad. Uh, looking at another area where there's not a lot of accountability, uh, is that's uh, of course military spending. Uh, and we've we've seen uh, the last three years running, the Pentagon can't get a clean audit uh, for the Defense Department. Uh, they they may be able to find certain parts of the department that can get past an audit, but a lot of them can't. Um, how? Uh, what needs to change in the department's culture, do you think, uh, in order to get A clean audit, Uh, and and can we ever actually hold them accountable for how they spend our money?
3: Well, it'll have to be done at metaphorical gunpoint, right? They're gonna (laughs) they're gonna resist that to their dying breath, metaphorically speaking, right? right? But uh, it's it's we've just got this this massive problem with big government spending overall, and the thing that that boggles the mind for me is that conservatives understand this when it comes to. The Department of Education or the FDA or the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. These big, bloated agencies have no direct skin in the game. They are spending somebody else's money on somebody else, as Milton Friedman would always say. That lends itself to waste and inefficiency, and then they're not democratically elected, and nobody pays attention really to what they do, except nerds like us who will dig through inspector general's reports but we are the minority, I must say. Uh, and so then there's just these massive levels of, of waste. And so I think the conversation is almost incomplete without acknowledging that this is a systemic problem. And I know we might talk about this later, but uh, when you look at the COVID spending, the insane levels of COVID government spending we've had, actually they spent 200 billion minimum on waste, just in one portion of the spending, the unemployment spending. That is actually the fourth biggest expenditure overall. It's way more than all the total money they spent on vaccines. They lost to waste in just one program. So it's a really bad problem. But I don't think it's ever going to be fixed when we just keep giving the military more money every year, no matter what. Uh, And that that happened under Trump. It happened under Obama. And now it's happening under Biden. You know, he requested an increase, uh, a small increase for the next fiscal year in this budget, uh, and it's just going. It, it's like Joe Biden and the Biden administration, so on, have been progressive in all the ways that a fiscal conservative, libertarian like me hates. You know, massive welfare spending, huge new regulations, and then not progressive in the few ways I would appreciate, like fully bringing the troops home and <laughs> cutting military spending. At least a president Bernie Sanders would be willing to entertain. I think military spending cuts, but Biden is of the establishment and his latest military budget is mostly a continuation of that status quo.
2: Why do you think um, Biden sort of gave up the ghost on even bothering to, Oh well, I mean, he is cutting OCO, but he isn't even challenging a cut uh, Pentagon spending. I mean, they're not even bothering to lower that. Why do you think that's, not even being challenged anymore from Democrats, even. Why is that not even something that they're bothering?
3: Yeah, I think you will have a few progressive Democrats speak out on this. You know, your Ro Khanna's and your Tulsi Gabbard's of the world. But most of them, honestly, it's just kind of, to me, emblematic of of the bigger political picture. They're more focused on the culture war or hot button policy issues that everyone, that their voters call them up about. And the people are tweeting them about like, abortion or gay rights or- The Green New Deal, you mean? (laughs) Yeah, that stuff. Climate change is a big one. And so this kind of thing just falls in the background. And you are right. They did, they did supposedly, they're going to work to eliminate the overseas contingency operations account. But the thing is, when you're doing that and you're not actually cutting the overall level of spending, I think it's only so much that actually is gained.
2: Well, like, because that overall amount I mean, they've added so much over to the top, they don't even need it anymore. I mean,
0: right, and you don't know where it went. It might have just well, it just we- shuttled into some other part of the, the budget. I mean, the argument is that there'll be more um, oversight over it if that money is in a specific program under the regular budget. But as we all know on this call, there's right. of ways to play shell game with, with $10. I mean, dollars,
3: I would say that that that's probably a slight improvement, right. I will give them that. I just think it's very, very modest in its scope because even regularly allocated spending for the military is not particularly well scrutinized. No. So right. it is good that this like dark slush fund is is going to be <laughs> in their back potentially. but it would be a lot better if the actual regular process for spending, had any sort of serious accountability done to it, but it really doesn't, unfortunately.
2: I wanted to sort of look at some of the costs of the development of the vaccines versus the actual military spending, because we have developed some very costly weapons of war, some of which don't actually work. Like we have an aircraft carrier that can't launch aircrafts and well that's one actually you can't launch aircraft i think we're still trying to get it to do that for a cost of a couple more billion maybe um and we have some a whole bunch of projects like this f-35 we have 35 we have um we have some missile defense um spending that may or may not be able to actually um launch, uh, take missiles out of the sky now at this point where I sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so we have, anyway, each one of these projects, I mean, you can give us the numbers. Um, and then I just like to compare that to sort of the cost of developing the MRNA vaccine, because I was really shocked when I uh, saw what it costs over about, I think it was about a 20 year period to develop MRNA vaccines and, Um, how much that caused. And I just want to kind of talk about that because as a, you know, something where it's global pandemic and how much the whole world has been working on this, was it, it's, I think it's something that uh, we should sort of discuss our priorities maybe a little bit here.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've spent trillions of dollars on, on endless wars in the Middle East um, but to talk about the vaccines, so the underlying mRNA technology has been in the works for a long time. So it's kind of hard to really know how much has gone into that. But just looking at Operation Warp Speed, the public private partnership that got us these amazing vaccines, that cost somewhere between 10 to 20 billion dollars. That's like, sounds like a lot, but when you put it in the context of the trillions that we spend, right, the 753 billion defense budget Biden's requesting for next year, the um, trillions that we're going to end up paying in the coming years just to cover the interest on the national debt every year, it's really a minuscule amount of money. Uh, And in the COVID relief bills, they spent about $37 billion on vaccine and treatment development for COVID. Now, let's put that in context of the spending. They spent $6 trillion total and just at most 50 billion or so went to the vaccines, So a lot of it wasn't about that. But I think that's what, what's really mind boggling to me is, is the vaccines is, in my view, the most defensible and important aspect of the government spending here, uh, enabling us to, to solve this. Yet we ended up having millions for bridges and hundreds of billions for uh teachers' unions, carve-outs, and a state and local bailout, despite there being no revenue shortage, actually, that materialized. And just, I mean, I've written about this, waste upon waste upon waste, and then politician pet projects and these bills and massive new welfare programs. And yet we're literally spending like a tiny percentage. In the Biden $1.9 trillion bill, 1% of the money went to vaccines. So it, it's wow. just mind-boggling to me when you put the numbers in context, where the government's priorities actually are. Absolutely. and
1: That's one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about from uh, advocates of restraint uh, over the last year. Uh, Looking at the Republican Party, uh, what do you think the prospects are for uh, restraint and non-interventionism, particularly among members of Congress? Do you see any promising pro-restraint Republicans out there?
3: Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, I'm pretty... (laughs) bothered by a lot of the directions of the Republican Party on a number of things. But I will say that I think, um, at least in rhetoric and underlying views, the GOP has been shifting in the right direction. Trump didn't follow through on almost any of his foreign policy promises, but the things that got him elected, many of them were still anti-war, anti-intervention, bring the troops home. Uh, America first—a new kind of message that just would have sounded alien under the George Bush or GOP. So I, th- and then we've watched that kind of bleed down from Trump. So when you think of who are the other big Republicans now, uh, that that well, until recently, I would say one of them was Matt Gates. Now he's mm-hmm. a clown in many ways and has his own <laughs> personal scandals now, but he was anti-war. He was bring the troops home. Uh, you yep. look at pe- new members of Congress, like Representative uh, Peter Meyer, who right. joined uh, to fill Justin Amash's old seat in Michigan. He's out there talking about bringing the troops home. He's a veteran. He's saying, repeal the authorization of the use of military force uh, from years ago that's still used to justify all of this kind of never-ending war. Uh, and then you you have people like uh, Nancy Mace from, from South Carolina who she is out there as America first, bring the troops home Republican. If you think about the big popular figures or alternatively, the unpopular figures in the GOP, people like uh, Liz Cheney, right? How has her stock fallen among the Republican base? So there are still some, I think, people with more neoconservative and hawkish uh, positions that are in, positions of real power and standing in the GOP, you think of the Dan Crenshaw's of the world, but I would say, I think it's, I think it's moving in a good direction on that front.
0: Let me ask a quick question, just a quick follow-up. Sorry, Dan. Oh, that's fine. Um, I, I totally get you that the base is probably with the Rand Pauls and the, the Peter Meyer and Nancy Maces of the world, but are you concerned that it seems like the power uh, base you know, the locus of power in Washington is moving in the opposite direction. You mentioned Liz Cheney. We know Tom Cotton is is all over the place, you know, um, promoting uh, tough action against China. Um, you got Lindsey Graham still out there searching for the next war. Um, you know, the, that's where the power is in, in the Senate right now is with, with those type of Republicans. Are you worried that there's this chasm between the people and the base and like, who's actually running the show.
3: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I think I know people in foreign policy circles talk about the blob, right? There is this constellation of Washington DC concentrated power that is very entrenched in favor of more conflicts and more adventurism uh, and more nation building and more aggression. Uh, And it's a, a real problem. I guess I would say that I think in the short term, that's a real problem in the long term, if you win the base and you win the hearts and minds, it'll shift eventually. I mean, because when you think about other issues, uh, gay marriage is a good example. Uh, The public opinion was slowly growing in favor of gay marriage until about 2012 when it finally hit 51%. You know what else changed in 2012? The positions of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama on gay marriage. Right. We had both run in 2008, as I believe marriage is between one man <laughs> and one woman. And all of a sudden they were waving the rainbow flag mm-hmm. and saying, mm-hmm. I, I want equality, marriage equality. And I use that as an example because it's one uh, that I is personally, uh, I think is very, shows this quite well. If you win the base and the hearts and minds, ultimately in the long run, That will lead to the political change, though the entrenched interests certainly slow that process down. So that's a very real problem in the short term. But the long term trajectory, I think, is a positive one. I also will say this. If Biden ends up being hawkish and um, getting us into another conflict or something like that, that could also stir, you know, politics is so tribal now. Right. But anything Biden does, you can count on Republicans to start hating more. So if he ends up being hawkish, as he has been throughout his career in many ways, uh, that could push more Republicans to all of a sudden become bleeding heart doves. Uh, and I, I would say, however cynical and partisan that might be, I'll take it.
2: Don't forget, though, it was Biden who got out ahead of Obama on gay marriage. Yeah. So his political instincts, even though they don't get a lot of credit in D.C., um, Sometimes they're better maybe than we give him credit for.
3: <laughs> yeah, I will say he has a particularly bad track record on foreign policy.
2: <laughs> so do you think – what do you see in terms of – where do you think the things are going with him and this and China and his team since they, everything that happened with his team in Alaska – the Chinese delegation and then since then, since both the Democrats and the Republicans have been acting pretty hawkish towards China.
3: Yeah, the China issue is one that um, I'll be the first to say I'm hardly an expert in, in, in it, but I find it concerning. I think a lot of people can say, regardless of what measures you support, China's values and their approach to the world stage is is very aggressive and very concerning. Uh, and so I'm definitely bothered by it. I don't think the answer is, you know, aggression and, and really dangerous uh, escalations. But that does seem to be increasingly an area of bipartisan consensus, this idea that we got to get tough on China, which I guess I, I'm actually sympathetic to the impulse. It's just the policy solutions always seem to be wrong and counterproductive. So if we want to limit our dependence on China, for example... In my view, the best way to do that would be to sign massive new free trade deals with Singapore and Vietnam and India, not to start a trade war with the second largest economy in the world or or depending how you look at it. Um, So, I guess the China issue is one where I'll say, boy, it is complicated and there's a lot of problems there, but I do worry that both parties are really clamoring the war bell. I don't think we'll have a, a hot war with China, certainly. Uh, But I do worry that we'll end up in something resembling a a cold war with them if we're not already approaching that now.
2: It feels like there's a bit of a feeling for revenge for coronavirus in the air. That's. that's
3: Yeah, I mean, if anything was going to stir up anti-China sentiment that already existed Mm. uh, in the U.S., I think the COVID and, and to be fair, I mean. Chinese people don't deserve any blame for this, and Chinese Americans absolutely don't. But the China Chinese government, right? The Communist Party officials, they really did botch this with coronavirus, right? They at the beginning tried to cover it up, literally arresting doctors who tried to warn journalists, and that meant the world got a a, a late start on on keeping it contained. So. I don't know what the answer is in terms of punishing them or holding them accountable. I don't we probably can't in any reasonable or sensible way that wouldn't hurt us, too. Uh, but that de- they do deserve that blame in terms of the government.
0: Well, thank you, Brad. I mean, we're out of time, but we hope that you'll come back on the show. And thank you for being one of our, our first guests on Crashing the War Party. It means a lot to us.
3: Thanks so much for having me and good luck with the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you.